Well, welcome back to the Lamp Post Listener. My name is Daniel. I'm Phil. And this is a podcast where we journey chapter by chapter through C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. This is chapter three of Prince Caspian, the Dwarf. The Dwarf. Yes, we have another uh, n- not as inspired chapter title again. <laughs> C.S. Lewis just kind of giving it to us. It's basically what it says in the title. Yeah, and you were telling me right before we started recording, you, you've you been looking ahead at some of the chapter titles and you regret Accidentally. that. Yeah. So I have all the books together in one giant volume. Which kind of breaks my heart. Well, yeah, <laughs> but it makes it very easy to carry around. Sure. Um, and always have all of them access to everything. But to find Prince Caspian, it's kind of in the middle because it's not exactly in the order that they were written. So I have to turn to page 329 to get it to this chapter. For some reason, I started at the back and I accidentally saw a title of chapter eight, title of chapter 12, whatever it was. And it's like how they did this. I'm like, that's a spoiler. Do you like CS Lewis has a couple of those where uh, and throughout all of the books where it's like how blank cap I actually think actually uh, there's yeah like you said there's one coming up do you do you like just knowing exactly what's going to happen in a, in a no, chapter absolutely no. not <laughs> I don't like reading the table of contents unless it's a nonfiction book like about business or something yeah. Yeah. Only if it's about business or could it be about, you know, history or something? Oh, if it's about history, that's different. I don't you, know if I want to have that spoiled either. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right uh, now I'm in the 1400s. No idea what's going to happen. Oh, nice. So I, I, I kind of like the very simple kind of uh, mysterious chapter titles we're getting. Like I'm thinking if I'm reading this for the first time as a kid and I'm going through and I had the island, I'm like, oh, what's that about? Right. And then I have... Uh, the ancient treasure house and now the dwarf. I'm like, wow, this is just getting a little bit more and more mysterious. And I, I want to talk about that a little bit more in a minute because I was thinking that there's a new revelation in each one of these first three chapters that gives us a better idea of what's been going on in Narnia. So um, do you want to just jump into the chapter summary? Let's jump in. Actually, before we do that, I just realized we haven't talked about where we left off. And we left off with Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy discovering the ruins of Care Paravel. They've got their gifts from Father Christmas, except Edmund. And they have settled back down for the night. So let's jump into the chapter. All right. The Pevensies continue exploring the island and ruins of Care Paravel when Edmund comes to the realization that many years have passed since they left. Before they're able to process this revelation, the Pevensies are interrupted by the sound of others. They make their way to the beach in time to see two soldiers preparing to execute a dwarf. Thinking quickly, Susan sends a warning shot from her bow and scares both soldiers away. The dwarf, who remains unnamed, comes back to the island with the children. After a meal together, the dwarf explains that he is a messenger of King Caspian X. He alludes to the idea of old and new Narnians, which confuses the children. Realizing that they know very little of present affairs, the dwarf settles down to tell them a long story. So there you have it, chapter three. Phil, tell me some of your first impressions about this chapter. I love meeting this new character. I love how quickly Susan reacts and fires the shot. Um, the speed with which she did that was kind of cool to see. And I also like how um, the chapter leads into the next chapter um, where C.S. Lewis is like, I'm not going to have all the interruptions. Yeah. That, that really means a lot to me. Yeah. So I, I know he's not named here in the chat. Do I actually, maybe I shouldn't say the dwarf's name because you don't know who he is. Well, not in this chapter, yes. So I'm not going to say anything. Who do, you, who do you think the dwarf is? I still am calling him the dwarf in my head. Okay, do you, and you're not sure who this could be? Right. Okay, so I'll leave it at that. I, I was about to reveal some stuff, and then I realized you might not know. So uh, the thing that stood out to me is that we have gotten kind of... Uh, stop looking ahead. I can see you flipping pages in that book, Phil. <laughs> um, 
each and each uh, chapter. Put the axe down. <laughs> I can see you picking up that axe. Um, you know, in each chapter as we've gone through this, we've received a different revelation about where we are or what's been happening in Narnia. So in the first chapter, the kids are brought back to Narnia. And at first, they're not even sure if it is Narnia or not. And then they do discover, yes, we are back in Narnia. In the second chapter, they learn that they're actually in the ruins of Care Paravel, that this is the same castle they once ruled in. And then in this chapter, they discover that many, many years have passed. So it's Edmund that figures out that, wow, a lot of time has passed. I looked up on the Narnian timeline at uh, the Chronicles of Narnia wiki, and it's it's 1,303 years. Oh. It has been a long time. That's more than I thought. I was thinking like 500, 700. No, 1,303. So the Pevensey's first... Like a, about a year in Earth time? Yeah, about a year in Earth time. Just and, did the math in my head. Good job. Uh, the Pevensies, they arrived in Narnia the first time in the year 1000. So that worked out really well. It did. Yeah, it did. Um, yeah. And then they return now. It's the year 2303. Okay. It's like when Jesus was born right at year zero. So that was really nice. Yeah, timing. that worked out really well for the calendar. I sure did. Yeah. <laughs> what a great starting point. <laughs> actually, uh, moving ahead, I actually have some timeline stuff to talk about in the next chapter too, but I'll, yeah. I'll, kind of, I'll, I'll pump the brakes on that. So before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I think we should go ahead. Phil, I think you're going to read a little bit from uh, chapter three, the beginning. Yep. The worst of sleeping out of doors is that you wake up so dreadfully early. And when you wake up, you have to get up because the ground is so hard that you are uncomfortable. And it makes matters worse if there is nothing but apples for breakfast and you had nothing but apples for supper the night before. When Lucy had said, truly enough, that it was a glorious morning, there did not seem to be anything else nice to be said. Edmund said what everyone was feeling. We've simply got to get off this island. When they had drunk from the well and splashed their faces, they all went down to the stream again to the shore and stared at the channel which divided them from the mainland. One of the things that really sticks out to me in this beginning of this chapter is we haven't gotten the glorious return to Narnia that you would think we, that they would have gotten. You know what I mean? It's almost, I was thinking about this and just to kind of break the fourth wall for us, like we're recording this during the Advent season. And so I've been thinking a lot about the incarnation and, you know, the, the fact that when, when Jesus came, it wasn't, you know, with fanfare, it wasn't like, the, it, it wasn't the way we thought it would be, right? It was in this lowly manger and a similar kind of things happening to our, our protagonists here. Like, they have come back to Narnia, and it's not this triumphal entry by the kings and queens of old, who, as we've learned in the little bit, uh, in a couple chapters forward, we learned that they're almost like these fantasy figures. Like, they've become legends in and of themselves. Uh, spoiler alert, sorry. Uh, but the, they come back, and they're all by themselves, and no one is here to greet them, and it's just, it's not, and even they're not, don't, don't even really seem to be enjoying it that much. And it's really interesting because we've talked about this, but a lot of people don't find this to be their favorite book. A lot of people would even say it's their least favorite. And I wonder if it's because it kind of subverts our expectations a little bit. Like it's just not what we expect from a return to, like it's called Prince Caspian, The Return to Narnia. And this is really not what I expect in A Return to Narnia. Here's a question for you about expectations. Okay. When you view something, usually like a sequel, so this would be considered a sequel, right? Yeah. Yeah. So... When I go and I watch a sequel, I actually like being surprised. There have been a few sequels that have come out, and I won't like say specifics, but like there is one where a very key character gets taken out in the first 20 minutes. 
and I was not expecting that because like they kind of carried the first the first one and I really kind of like when my expectations are not met in that way so when you go into a sequel you're not looking for the same kind of magic of you know, <laughs> I, there is magic in this one but you're not you're not looking for the same kind of recipe for success that you saw in the last one you're looking right. for something different we've already done that Okay. Yeah. And like when people are like, oh, this series was so much better when someone else did it. I'm like, yeah, we already have that. That's been done. So you don't want to see something similar in your sequels. You don't want to see a similar kind of formula. You want to see something different. Right. Oh, not every single time, but I am pleasantly surprised when it does happen, if it works. What are some of your favorite sequels that do that do this? Uh, one that comes to mind is that it is not really, doesn't really match up with this content, but okay. um, Kingsman. Like okay. I was just pleasantly surprised by some of this. Like, it wasn't a great movie overall. Yeah, I thought most people didn't like it. Yeah, I was just like, I was, I liked being surprised by some of the plot points. Okay. Yeah. So you're glad they didn't just kind of retread what was successful about the first Kingsman movie. They went out on the land. And so it seems like a lot of people really didn't like that one. So I'm interested to hear by the end of this book how you feel about Prince Caspian. Because maybe this is exactly right up your alley that this is so different from our first trip to Narnia that you're going to be like, I love it. I can't. Well, I'm, that's what I'm so excited about so far. Okay. Is that this is not exactly what I would expect. Like you kind of think they'd go back and there'd be some of the same people there and they're all gone. They're all gone. They they're did. like, they're super gone. It's like a thousand years later, according to the timeline. Yeah. Which is crazy. Exactly. So, so I mean, I, like, I kind of like that. Like it's still Narnia. Technically we're, we're back. Technically. Yes. Technically we have all four of the, the main characters, but everything is really different. Yeah. One of the things that sticks out to me as they move ahead is, you know, Edmund says we've got to get off this island, and you know we're going to have to swim. And the you know Peter's worried, like I don't know, none, you know, he's really actually worried about Edmund, who's not a great swimmer. And something really interesting comes up, and Susan says, uh, one, one, she says, Father says it's never wise to bathe in a place you don't know, which I think is this version of don't shut that wardrobe door when you get in it. That's right. <laughs> uh, but I also love the difference between our two cultures right now. Okay, where it's we shouldn't bathe in a place you don't know. I thought that meant like like if you're out of like a dorm room or a hotel, like probably don't take <laughs> you a bath. You didn't think that. Did you really I think did. that? Oh, man. The, the word choice sticks out to me a little bit yeah. because it's so different. But I do understand that they're talking about swimming. Yeah. The other thing that stuck out to me is this thing, which Lucy says, I know I can't swim for nuts at home. I mean, in England, I mean. But couldn't we all swim long ago if it was long ago when we were kings and queens in Narnia? Which is like, again, this whole thing comes up of what exactly happens in this transition between these two worlds? Do they still have all their same abilities? Did they loot? Like, so if they learned to swim when they were kings and queens in Narnia, are we to take it that when they came back through the wardrobe, they lost the ability to swim? I think that scientists would love to experiment on these four kids. That sounds awful. Do you still have, (laughs) yeah. Do you still have muscle memory if you no longer have the muscles Oh, because they would have been older. Yeah. Oh, that's really, really So, neat. like, you're, like, let's say you're 28 and, like, suddenly now you're 12 again or whatever the sure, sure. transition was. Like, you're not you're not the same person necessarily, but you still kind of have the memory. That's really interesting. And we can't really test with Susan's accuracy because it sounds like she was pretty accurate to begin with. Although, according to the movie, Lucy was more accurate than Susan. And she was throwing a knife. <laughs> I forgot. I don't know if that counts as the canon of this book. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, and it sounds like they did get some of that back, but it, it's still like a question, right? So she says, but couldn't we all swim long ago? And it, she's not 100% sure. So we'll have to keep an eye on this. Like, yeah. do they have all those things I love that it's being addressed back? by 
Lewis. Yeah, like like he's asking that question. One thing I'll be interested to see is, you know, how is Peter still with the sword? I'm assuming that if 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 we're to believe the same questions they're asking, he would have lost the ability to be a good fighter because that would have been something he did in Narnia. And I'm assuming he was not a trained swordsman back in England. So maybe maybe that's the thing we can keep an eye on is like how do they use their weapons? It seems like Susan is still a good shot. Did she earn this back or is this something she's just remembering? Right. I don't I'm really intrigued by that. So after they have this conversation about, you know, whether or not they can swim or do all these things, that's when Edmund has the realization of what time it actually is, or at least how much time has passed. And he says this. Oh, said Edmund in a voice which made everyone stop talking and listen to him. I've just seen it all, he said. Seen what? asked Peter. Why, the whole thing, said Edmund. You know what we were puzzling about last night, that it was only a year ago since we left Narnia, but everything looks as if no one had lived in Care Paravel for hundreds of years? Well, don't you see? You know that however long we seem to have lived in Narnia, when we got back through the wardrobe, it seemed to have taken no time at all. Go on, said Susan. I think I'm beginning to understand. And that means, continued Edmund, that once you're out of Narnia, you have no idea how Narnian time is going. Why, shouldn't hundreds of years have gone past in Narnia while only one year had passed for us in England? By Jove, Ed, said Peter. I believe you've got it. In that sense, it really was hundreds of years ago that we lived in Care Paravel. And now we're coming back to Narnia just as if we were Crusaders or Anglo-Saxons or ancient Britons or someone coming back to modern England. Can you give me a quick crash course in uh, the Crusaders versus the Anglo-Saxons and the Great Britons? So we're going to start the year 1066. Okay. AD, no, we're not. <laughs> well, I'll talk to you about it all there. <laughs> it, I mean, it is it is cool. And I think, you know, I think one, Lewis is probably really happy to, to you know, name drop some, some things that would have been really important to him, you know, as a scholar, uh, as someone who really loved, you know, English history. But at the same time, uh, it's this is when we're first getting the idea that like our characters have become legends in and of themselves. Like they are now a fairy tale in this fairy tale, which I think is really, it's real meta dude. (laughs) It is. It's several layers. So what happens next? First thing that sticks out to me right after the section you read is Lucy saying, Oh, how excited they'll be to see us. She, she doesn't quite understand that a hundred years or more has passed. Like it's not, it's not going to be the same group of people. Well, no, but I think she's saying that the, like, I mean, wouldn't you be hype if King Arthur came back? You know what I mean? Like that, like that's kind of what we're, no, you wouldn't be. It doesn't look like you would be. I just like, (laughs) let's say King Arthur comes back right now. Okay. Are you going to believe him? I guess not. No, I mean, but it's, that's, I guess that's You're going to think it's someone in costume. Okay. So like, uh, I mean, I I think she's not talking about seeing her friends again, but like they are the kings and queens of old who are heroes in the stories that are told about them. And so like them coming back, it will, it would feel like, you know, this kind of return. We learned that this is the golden age of Narnia was when they were kings and queens. So they'd be like, look, they're returning. And I guess they don't necessarily know how bad Narnia is right now. We're starting to figure it out as readers, but they don't necessarily know. I think if anything, she's being a little naive here. Yeah. I think that's a great word for it. So what happens next? Then we see an attempted execution. Yeah, that's kind of water, but it's like not the it's not a very thorough attempt. Like they didn't bring a stone. They're just going to like drop him in the water. It seems like the water is not that deep if they're able to wade in it and yeah. then get out. Um but we find out that they're they're probably scared. I think that the whole place is inhabited with ghosts. Yeah, so we get we get these two soldiers. We're not really sure who they are, where they come from at this point in the story. Uh, you know, they're on this boat. They're trying to, they're going to dump this dwarf over the side of the boat to be executed. They've got him tied up. 
Um, and they, they seem less of being these really uh, malicious, evil people and more just being like bumbling idiots. You know what I mean? And like maybe that's to kind of make this a little bit easier because now it's kids reading about this dwarf that's about to be thrown overboard to drown to death, which is pretty dark. And so like, hey, well, if we make it kind of funny, <laughs> it'll be easier to True. stomach, right? Uh, so then I love this. Before anyone is able to really do anything about this because the Peventies are watching from the beach, Susan lets an arrow go right by the the head of one of the soldiers who I guess he, he falls into the water and before anything else can be done, the other soldier just jumps overboard and runs like wades through the water, I guess to the other side of the bank, which again, I get this is very shallow water then because <laughs> they're yeah, not right. swimming. So just a quick point. It actually hits his helmet. Oh, it does. Yeah. So the, the twang that goes by someone's ear is actually Peter's ear. That's Peter's ear. Oh. Peter hears the twang and then the guy gets hit in the head and he goes falling down, but he doesn't die. I thought I thought she had taken him out. I was like, man, she like judged during executioner like real quick. Yeah, she's like, decision. like, oh no, doors are good. <laughs> like, Got it. Even though in the last time we she saw it, well, we don't know what happened before they came back. But in the last book, that usually when we saw dwarves, they were evil. So, right. well, <laughs> yeah, or at least bad. I should say. I don't want to you know put that whole blanket statement over them. <laughs> um, and I love that C.S. Lewis reminds us that you know Susan. Had obviously done this, you know, she knew what she was doing. She would have hit it if she uh, if she needed to. Doesn't he say that? Yeah, she goes, I wasn't shooting to kill you, no, said Susan. She would not have liked anyone to think that she could miss at such short range. Yeah, I love I love that kind of like, wait, I just want to make sure everybody knows I'm good at this stuff, yeah. all right? That's that's really cool. So what do you think of this dwarf? Uh, I don't I don't think he's very good at being executioned. <laughs> okay, that's good. No, I mean, we don't know anything yet. Exactly, right? that's what I'm asking. Yeah. You, you're like kind of just like, I don't really know what's going on at all. So they help the dwarf get onto land. He gets free of his, you know, his the ropes that are tied around him. And he's, you know, he's very happy to find out that they probably are not ghosts. And we, and we learn that this is an island that most people think is haunted, which is why the, the soldiers kind of fled so quickly, even though, you know, just one arrow goes by. They probably should be a little bit braver than this if they are soldiers and they're like, no, 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 we're out. We'll leave him uh, here. So you as a reader, Phil, do you have any idea what's going on with this dwarf or anything? Nothing yet. Okay. So Except he, for his dialogue that we're about to read. There you go. So what, what does he have to say? Sure. What were they going to drown you for? Asked Peter. Oh, I'm a dangerous criminal, I am, said the dwarf cheerfully. But that's a long story. Meanwhile, I was wondering if perhaps you were going to ask me to breakfast. You've no idea what an appetite it gives one, being executed. There's only apples, said Lucy dolefully. Better than nothing, but not as good as fresh fish, said the dwarf. It looks as if I'll have to ask you to breakfast instead. I saw some fish tackle in that boat. And anyway, we must take her round to the other side of the island. We don't want anyone from the mainland coming down and seeing her. So we got a pretty practical dwarf who's there's a forward thinker here. And then you know, the very next thing is Peter's like, oh, I, I probably should have thought of that myself. At least that's the way I'm reading it is like, it's not like, you know, he's almost kind of embarrassed. Like, wait, I'm supposed to be the high king. And like, I forgot to do that. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, I think Peter's saying it in, uh, in that kind of embarrassed way. And C.S. Lewis himself even says the dwarf is a very capable person, which makes me realize that, you know, the Pevensies kind of need Narnia as much as Narnia needs them. Like, they're not really off to a super hot start here. I mean, things aren't going poorly for them, but they're still on the island. I think it's this is the third day, I think. No, I guess this is only the second day because they've only spent the one night in the castle. So, 
you know, they haven't really made a lot of progress, really. They've mostly just been hanging out on the island. Peter forgot to do this one thing, and then we see the dwarf come and feeds them something besides apples, which they didn't have before. Now, he does have the fishing tackle, which is a thing, you know. But I'm I'm getting the sense that it's gonna they're a little they're a little rusty after 1300 years, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> so I I like the idea of this Narnian coming to them, and having some of the answers that maybe they don't have. Yeah. I also love just the imagery of they're going around Narnia. They kind of think they recognize some stuff, but there are so many trees that it's completely different. It's just a fun visual. Like if you like look around where we live, and just how different it would be if everything was overgrown. Yeah. It'd be like kind of the same layout. And like the same distance to stuff, but it looked completely different. Exactly. So after they have their, their meal, the dwarf, as they're, they're talking about the castle, the dwarf says, beards and bedsteads. And the only reason I'm pointing that out is because, and you probably don't know this yet, but this is going to be kind of a running expression for him. Is he, he kind of says a lot of like two different nouns together, two like kind of seemingly not related nouns together. So I want us to keep a running log of the many different uh, exclamations that, you know, the, the many different interjections that the dwarf has. So our very first one is beards and bedstead. So I don't... Noted. Yeah. <laughs> Does it mean anything to you? It, it reminds me of Harry Potter where they keep How saying so? Merlin's beard. Oh, uh, okay. Just, like, I love little things like that where it's like, oh, their expletives or their sayings are going to be slightly different. Do you think this is him saying like something inappropriate? You're saying it's, his, uh, it's an expletive. It's just an expression. Well, you, I mean, you went a little bit further. You're saying, like, this is something he shouldn't be saying around kids. What do you consider Merlin's beard to be? No, I think they're just, like, saying, like, oh, my goodness. They're taking Merlin's name in vain. Oh, my gosh. Don't say that. <laughs> uh, I think you need to reread Harry Potter if, you, if that's what you think is going on. <laughs> so um, they get together. They have their breakfast. And the dwarf starts talking to the children. And this is what C.S. Lewis writes. When everyone had finished off with a drink from the well and an apple or so, the dwarf produced a pipe about the size of his own arm. <laughs> Which just pause for a second. That's wild. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's uh, he filled it, he lit it, and blew a great cloud of fragrant smoke and said, Now, you tell us your story first, said Peter, and then we'll tell you ours. Well, said the dwarf, as you've saved my life, it is only fair you should have your own way. But I hardly know where to begin. First of all, I'm a messenger of King Caspian's. Who's he? Asked four voices all at once. Caspian the Tenth, King of Narnia, and long may he reign, answered the dwarf. That is to say, he ought to be King of Narnia, and we hope he will be. At present, he is only King of us old Narnians. Well, what do you mean, old Narnians, please? asked Lucy. Why, that's us, said the dwarf. We're a kind of rebellion, I suppose. I see, said Peter. And Caspian is the chief old Narnian? Well, in a manner of speaking, said the dwarf, scratching his head. But he's really a new Narnian himself. A, a tell Marine, if you follow me. I don't, said Edmund. It's worse than the Wars of the Roses, said Lucy. And that's what we'll stop before we finish the chapter, but... Is the War of the Roses a real thing? Yeah, it was uh, a, uh, like part of some English Civil Wars in the 15th century. Ah, uh, yes. That was around the 1400s, I believe. Yeah, that's correct. Um, <laughs> uh, we sound really smart when we have computers in front of us, don't we? <laughs> um, so I, I really like, this is, this is where you know, we see our protagonists for the first time, even out loud, seem confused. Like, they do not know what's going on at all. Like, we've seen them be confused with, within one another, and we, we've seen that as readers, but now they're talking to an actual Narnian, and you wouldn't blame this dwarf if he didn't know who they were, or like... Was, was surprised to find out that they were these kings and queens of old because they seem completely out of their own element here. Right. Yeah. 
I also love how when um, Edmund speaks, I'm still relating to him a lot. Good. And he goes, if you follow me. And Edmund goes, I don't. <laughs> and I wrote, me either. Yeah. I'm lost here. I mean, one of the things I'm realizing uh, in this book and now in The Line of Witch on the Wardrobe is I relate to Edmund a lot more than I ever thought I did. I saw myself in him a lot as a sinner and as in that whole supposal of Aslan uh, and his redemption. I was I was relating to Edmund a lot as a sinner. And now here I'm relating to him as someone who's kind of just like speaking for the audience. And I really appreciate that in him. Right. I, I, I love it when that's done. Um, there's a there's another podcast I like. And there's one person who's kind of like the showrunner. Mm-hmm. And then the other person tends to ask questions that may come across as like, like oh, you, you don't know or you're not as cool. But like, it's like having the audience there. Sure. It's great. Sure. And I love it as a, a narrative technique too. At, at this point, can I ask you this? Can you rank the Pevensey children? On what scale? Just like, wh- like, who, like, who do you like the best at this at this point? You're like just a little bit into Prince Caspian. You've read Lionel Lewis from the Wardrobe. You have no idea really what, for the most part, what happens later on. Do you have a favorite and least favorite or anything? Susan, Lucy, Edmund, Peter. Wow, yeah. I think that's a pretty uh, that's a sick choice. shot, Susan. Yeah, so you're Susan's your favorite Pevensey then. Right now, after reading this chapter, yes. Then you said Edmund was next. No, Lucy. 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 Edmund, Lucy's just got some great dialogue. Peter. Okay. And it's like she's, you know, she's uh, growing up a little bit and saying slightly more mature things. Mm -hmm. And like, it's just cool to see those changes. Edmund too, like we're still like seeing the fruit of the experience that he went through before. Okay. And like Peter's not really thinking about the tackle and the boat or like what they should do and bring it around. But I'm not counting him out. It's just like if I have to rank him. Yeah, I mean, it's it's your least favorite. doesn't mean you dislike him. It's just of the four, that's he's your least favorite. Okay, interesting. Can you imagine saying that to your kids? <laughs> no, I, you're not, it's not that I dislike you. It's just you're my least favorite. It's <laughs> yeah. terrible. Uh, so then the chapter ends with the dwarf hearing all of this and deciding he, he needs to rethink his strategy of, of explaining things to them. And this is what he says. Oh, dear, said the dwarf. I'm doing this very badly. Look here. I think I'll have to go right back to the beginning and tell you how Caspian grew up in his uncle's court and how he comes to be on our side at all. But it'll be a long story. All oh, the better, said Lucy. We love stories. So the dwarf settled down and told his tale. I shall not give it to you in his words, putting in all the children's questions and interruptions, because it would take too long and be confusing. And, even so, it would leave out some of the points that the children only heard later. But the gist of the story, as they knew it in the end, was as follows. Are you excited to keep going on? I am. Yeah. When, when I read this, I went... And I turned you, the page immediately. You just turned the right. So you have you you've read ahead to chapter four. Yes. Yeah. I was okay. trying to keep that a secret, but yes. So, I, so then I want to talk a little bit. Of, I want to move forward a little bit and talk about chapter four because mm-hmm. let's this, talk about what's up next. So I want to actually go ahead a little bit because in the next chapter, chapter four, the dwarf tells a Prince Caspian. Under the cover of darkness, Prince Caspian learns of old Narnia. And I don't want to go too far ahead, Phil, but we're actually not going to hear back from our Pevensies for a couple of chapters. What? Yeah, that's yes, that's correct. So this is a split in our narrative. It's going to break off from the rest. We're going to kind of take a non-linear approach and go back and find out what led to this dwarf coming here. And I really, really like this. I know some people do not enjoy this. And so I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts as we kind of travel along. I am a huge fan of nonlinear storytelling. And I think, again, it's just one more thing that subverts your expectations. None of this happened in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. 
It was a straightforward, completely different from start to finish. We even found out in the movie they even shot it in chronological order, and that made sense because the movie is is very very linear. I mean, literally, they literally come into Narnia and then they go across the map east, and then that's where the book ends. I think they did it because it was easy to do. <laughs> I know that, but it's, I'm just like they didn't saying, have to go back and like reshoot. No, I get at that. Other locations. But, I mean, it is a very, very linear novel. Again, if we go back to my dreaded map, they're starting off in the Lantern Waste, and they travel east to Care Paravel, and that's kind of where the story ends. Well, here, I mean, this is going to be a really, really different shift. And I, I like it because, again, think back to what I said at the beginning of this chapter. In the first chapter, we learned that the kids are back in Narnia. In the second one, we find out they're in the ruins of Care Paravel. In the third one, we find out that 1,300 years have passed. So there are still a ton of questions. And finally, in chapter four, we get to begin filling in the gaps of the, in the knowledge that we do have. And I think this is extremely unique for a children's story. I mean, this is, I love this. I'm really, I am on board. I don't know how, I, maybe I'll feel differently when we get, you know, when we finally get back to the Peventies, but I love the kind of story within a story. Me too. So you're looking forward to this. Yeah, very much. So yeah, I mean, they are, I mean, we do both really like nonlinear storytelling. And so I'm, Really, really happy that this appears in the Chronicles of Narnia. And think, we've got seven books. And so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defend this book for a second because I know some people really don't like this approach. And there are some that do. And again, listeners, whether you love this, hate this, or indifferent about the fact that we are going to take a step back from the rest of our main characters, who, you, who we love so dearly, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. But I really like the fact that in, in there's a book with set or a series with seven books. And again, Lewis didn't know that at the time, but that this book is so different. I mean, we got six other books to read. I'm okay with one of them having a, a what sometimes does feel like it's a little chopped up because of its nonlinear approach. I'm I'm glad that we have a book like that. I will say it does feel weird that it's just the second book. Like this to kind of subvert the structure so quickly. Like we haven't even really established a structure for these books yet. I think the one change that maybe would be better and maybe this is an argument for reading it in chronological order is that if if you were to read this book fourth when you've gotten into kind of a little bit of a pattern of oh these are kind of how these books work to have the fourth book be the one that kind of shifts the way it's approached to storytelling i I think that'd be a cool kind of way to go now you still should read in publication order but i could see where that'd be an interesting take four books in instead of the second here's a question for you on that line of thought would you feel differently if there were only two books, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Prince Caspian? I don't want to give away my thoughts too much about the book, but I I will say that if this book was the second of only a, a duology, I would... I think I'd be very disappointed. So I know I just defended it, okay. but I think if this was if this was 50% of the Chronicles of Narnia, I think I'd be very disappointed. Okay. What and, if it was a trilogy? What comes after this one? Uh, no, Voyage of the Dawn Treader comes next. It would still be the weakest of the three. I, I think, so it's the, it's the similar thing that's happened to me for something we never talk about on the show, and that's Star Wars. Um, it's a similar thing the way I feel about the prequels now. So at this point, we've Solo has come out, and we've got Episode 7 and 8 and Rogue One, and there's, there's now 10 Star Wars movies, and I am not a fan of the prequels. But I'll tell you what, now that the prequels are not 50% of the Star Wars movies in the world... I'm much more okay with them. Like, look, it's just three out of ten. So I'm okay with three of them not being so great because I've got seven other ones which I relatively enjoy. Right. And so like, it's, it's one of those things where like this being just one-seventh of this, uh, of this series makes me... It's, I can stomach it a lot easier, even the things I don't like. Because there are some things I, I don't love about this book. 
but I, yeah, it's the same kind of idea. When it's a smaller fraction of the entire franchise, I'm, I'm able to handle it. As someone who makes stuff, like I'm an illustrator, so when I make something and I put it out there and it's not that great compared to the other stuff I've done, I'm actually okay with that because sometimes that's a step to get to the really good stuff. Okay. And I think that that kind of happened with the prequels of Star Wars where it's like, okay, now we know what definitely not to do for a lot of different things and we learn from it. Mm -hmm. Like it took a lot of other things to happen too, but I wonder if that could be happening here where it's like yeah. we're, we're trying stuff, we're taking a few more risks, we're playing with the timeline, but maybe that's what made the other books work so well because he wrote this one second, right? Yeah, incorrect. Yeah. All right, well, well, before we get too off topic here, do you have any last thoughts on Chapter 3, The Dwarf? That's it on this end. All right, so like I said before, we will be back next time with Chapter 4, The Dwarf Tells of Prince Caspian. And again, in that chapter, Prince Caspian will learn about Old Narnia under the cover of darkness. So thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us into Narnia on our Twitter or Facebook pages. If you have any feedback, you can email us at thenarniapodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 406-646-6733. And I would really, really love to hear people's thoughts on this book because I think The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is pretty universally loved, but this one not so much. So write in. Tell us how you feel about this book. We would appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts because this helps other listeners find the show and join together on our read-through. Also, make sure you have subscribed to the show in your favorite podcast app so you can wake up with a new episode every other Wednesday. Our show's themes were created by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work in the links in the episode's description. Thank you for coming along on this journey, and we will be back next time with Chapter 4. So before we um, sign off, we did want to share a little bit of listener feedback. We love hearing from you guys. We take a look at everything that comes our way, and we wanted to give some of it some airtime. And despite the fact that we don't respond to these as often as we should, we really, really do appreciate them. And we're, we're making a decision right now, live on air, two months before you hear this episode. <laughs> Not live. Uh, we, we're going to check it more often, right? We're going to start responding to people because we want we want to show our listeners that we really do appreciate Y'all reaching out. Yeah, I think that's a good goal. Great. Take it away, Phil. We're new to the fame part. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard being famous. This was <laughs> very new for us. Uh. <laughs> so uh, Bethany says, Dear Daniel and Phil, I was a little surprised to hear you guys say that Turkish Delight is gross. My experience of Turkish Delight is through the Nestle candy bar called Big Turk. If you do an episode of you guys trying Turkish Delight, I would recommend that be one of the ones that you try because it tastes really good. Further up and further in, Bethany. Thanks, Bethany. Yeah. So this is exactly the kind of thing that we need because I don't know what brand of Turkish Delight to try. I've seen like a, a dusty old box of Turkish Delight, but <laughs> it didn't come in like an ornate tin that magically appeared in the snow, so I didn't know what to do. I thought you were going to say this is what we need. We need to start every episode out with us eating into the microphones and letting the <laughs> listeners hear that. Uh, every episode's a new p- kind of uh, type of Turkish Delight. That's right. That's like the ASMR thing, right? <laughs> so yeah, like, I was, like, was going to say like that. It's a, a very specific type of market. Um, maybe Nestle would be interested in sponsoring us. First one's oh, free. You, you think so? Well, Bethany, thanks for reaching out. I, I honestly have not had Turkish Delight in 
probably 10 years. I mean, it's been a long time, so maybe it's something we should do in the future, Phil. We'll, we'll, we'll test them out. Uh, and we'll have to go with uh, Big Turk. Big Turk. All right. Our next email is from a listener named Demos, and I apologize if I mispronounced your name there. He writes this. Hi there. We're still working through your episodes on The Line, The Witch, and The Wardrobe and are enjoying them immensely. I've read all of the Chronicles of Narnia to my three kids many times over, some more than others. I found Devin Brown's Inside Narnia series excellent, although he only did the first three books to coincide with the release of the recent films. In his book on Prince Caspian, he lists no fewer than nine themes to be explored in Prince Caspian. Number one, Phil, I know how much you love lists. <laughs> yeah. Uh, evil appears rarely as evil, but typically under some other guise. Number two, help often comes in an unanticipated form in a manner that is so unexpected and strange that it may be recognized as help only in looking back on it. I want to read number three because I really agree with it. Okay. Real community is made up of different types of individuals with different gifts and different abilities. That was that was a you extended only, number three. You only want to do number three. I re- that's really important to me. Okay. You have a bunch of different people with different gifts oh, all working together. Yeah. Number four is the celebration, joy, and merriment are central to life, not elements reserved only for holidays or vacations. Number five, the virtuous life is an adventure, one with hardship that must be taken seriously, but one not to be missed because it's the only path that leads to genuine happiness, real fulfillment, and true community. Number six, a life without virtue is not glamorous, fun, or exciting, but rather is petty, spiteful, dominating, and devouring. Number seven, in some ways, small everyday suffering is harder to bear than greater, more majestic kind. Number eight, right ruling requires a proper stance toward not just the subjects, but also for the land being governed. And the last one, true freedom is freedom from the self, freedom to turn one's attention outward toward the things that give purpose and meaning. So these are nine themes. Actually, do you know Devin Brown? I'm not familiar with this author. I do not know. Okay. It's not Dan Brown, the guy that wrote The Da Vinci Code. <laughs> no. He also wrote Digital Fortress, which was really good. I actually also like Angel Demons better, too. So. Oh, interesting. Um, but th- this is really cool. Thanks for, thanks for sharing this, Demos. I've, I've never heard of these nine themes, and some of them just in our kind of short time we spent with the book are already sticking out to me, and others that I'm not necessarily making uh, connections with, I wonder if they will change as we go through the book. So, Phil, the one that stuck out to you the most was Real Community. Yeah, and I, I think it's something that we'll talk about in a future episode, um, just how the different creatures had different abilities and um, different traits that allowed them to do different things. I like the one um, of help often comes in an un- unanticipated form in a manner that is so unexpected and strange that it might be recognized as help only in looking back on it. And I wonder if that's mm. what... If, if, what happens later on in this book with the Pevensies, I mean, this is chapter three, we're leaving the Pevensies now for quite a while. If when we, when these stories eventually come together, if, if some of this will be true. Hmm. Um, the last thing in this email, it's, it says one last observation. I've always wondered about how sentient trees play small, similar pivotal roles in both Tolkien's two towers and Prince Caspian. I'm fairly certain that Tolkien finished the Lord of the Rings before C.S. Lewis wrote Prince Caspian and can't help but speculate that Lewis was consciously or subconsciously borrowing from Tolkien in this regard. I'd be interested to hear what you think when you get to that part of the book. Thanks again for the great podcast. Well, thanks so much, Demos, for reaching out to us. Yeah, thank you. And so, Daniel, what, what do you think? That's an interesting question. Well, I don't want to share too much because in the very next chapter, we're going to talk about... Tre- Actually, the, the next couple of chapters, we're going to be talking about trees a lot. 
Um, so I, I, I don't actually want to sh- share it too much. I but we will talk about it. Yes, we will, we will okay. be talking about it coming up. I do think there is some connection. I think it there is also just some of these two guys were working close together, and so some things just carry over even without meeting. I think it's probably a little bit of both. I'd agree with that. All right. Okay, so this next one is from Tammy. She says, I just wanted to drop a line to tell you how much I'm enjoying the podcast. Wait, before you go, you got to read her wonderful subject of the email. Okay. Her subject is old lady, new listener. Pretty good. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. A good uh, subject line goes a long way. Mm-hmm. Actually, we get a lot of emails. We don't read them if we don't like the subject. So <laughs> we just send them right to trash. <laughs> it's Gmail. You don't have a trash. Or you don't use the trash. That's fair. You just archive everything. Tammy says, I just wanted to drop you a line to tell you how much I'm enjoying the podcast. Thanks, Tammy. I'm a lot older than you fellows. In fact, I'm sure I'm older than your mothers. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> you leave my mother out of this. <laughs> And I've been a Narnia fan for well over half a century. I first read Wardrobe around 1969 or so when I was nine years old. I checked it out of my school library and they only had the first volume. I had no idea it was part of a series and didn't read the rest until I got my first public library card a couple years later. I read too much, at least 100 books a year. Or I read too much, at least 100 books a year to have a favorite book. But the Narnia series is certainly on my long list of favorite books. It is also on the shorter list of what I call books that built me. I've read it through dozens of times. A Narnia story. Back in my day, there was no internet. Can you imagine? How did you find really. a podcast to listen to? <laughs> there was no internet, so I found if I found a word or reference I didn't understand, I had to turn to a dictionary or encyclopedia to suss it out. Looking up Turkish Delight, I learned it was a gelled candy available in fruit and floral flavors. That's good alliteration. But I never came across any during my childhood. Finally, when I was in my late teens, I visited an older cousin who was living in a touristy town in Northern California. There was a gourmet candy shop near her apartment that sold Turkish Delight. I was thrilled and bought some immediately. immediately. I also bought another candy I'd never seen before, gummy bears, which had only recently become available in the U.S. The Turkish Delight was disgusting, (laughs) which (laughs) just more evidence for you. The worst candy I'd ever eaten, even nastier than Horham. Big disappointment. But, funnily enough, the gummy bears tasted exactly like I had always imagined the Turkish Delight would. Enough about me, though. I found your podcast when there were just a few episodes left in the first season and binge listened to catch up. I'll be reading along with you for the second season. Prince Caspian is my favorite book in the series. Wow, that Finally, is a we have data somebody. point against yes. Daniel's theory that no one likes Prince Caspian. No, I just said some people... No, let's finish Tammy's email first. <laughs> Thank you for all the enjoyment I'm getting from listening to you. BT dubs, although I'm an atheist, I appreciate you. I appreciate the way you are including your Christian perspectives in your commentary. I think C.S. Lewis would approve as well. Tammy. Thanks, Tammy. That is so awesome, yeah. Tammy. Thanks so much for reaching out. Fantastic I love, email. Um, no, I and also I know that a lot of people also like this book. I've just heard from a lot of people that don't like the book. And mm-hmm. so I'm glad we have someone who's this is her favorite book in the series. That's awesome. It is. I also like um we know we, we, we obviously talk a lot about our Christian perspectives on the book. We know that we have a significant portion of listeners who, who do not share our faith. And so I'm glad that people are still able to enjoy the work, the content that we're creating, um, even if we don't share that same perspective. So. And I think that's exactly where we want to be. We want to be honest with our Christian perspective, but also mm-hmm. make sure that everyone feels like they can listen to the 
yeah. the podcast. I mean, it's, it's our worldview. I can't not read this book as a Christian. Right. But I also know that I have... I have as a Christian, you have to read this book. Yeah, that's true. If you grow up in a Christian church as a elementary schooler or middle schooler, you're going to end up reading these books. But also, it's hard for me to disassociate my the worldview that I have, right? Right. From what I'm reading. I do that with the many books. I look. I have you know a Christian take on pretty much everything I'm reading because that's I'm a Christian, right? So, yeah. but I'm, I'm glad, Tammy, that you're still enjoying this. Thank you for the I, the kind words. C.S. Lewis would approve as well. That means a lot coming from someone who it sounds like is kind of like my mom. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next up, we have an email um, from Barbara. Uh, the email is titled Robinson Caruso. Hello, I just listened to the first episode of Prince Caspian. I'm very glad you're back. I really enjoy your podcast as the Chronicles of Narnia are among my favorite books. I find it very insightful and interesting, and I think you're getting better and better. Yeah. It's the new microphones. That's what it is. I think it's the microphones. If you want to be serious, take yourself seriously. I wanted to add something to your discussion on Robinson Crusoe, as it's much more important for the Western culture than maybe you realize. It's an expression of the Protestant work ethic and the Western view of humanity that tames the wild nature thanks to industry and resourcefulness. It was very popular in the 18th century and spawned numerous translations, adaptations, and imitations nowadays sometimes called Robinsonados. I think that's how you say it. The Swiss family Robinson is one of them. Some of them focused more on the exotic adventure aspects and others following old Topos juxtapose the decadence and the corruption of civilization with the simple and happy state of nature. Some of them were written specifically for children in mind, and nowadays Robinson Crusoe is considered children's literature. In Poland, it's still obligatory reading in primary school. I, before she changes gears here, that's awesome. I didn't know any of those things. Did you? Yeah, I, I love the um, the Protestant work ethic part. Do you think we have that? I don't know. We're both Protestants. <laughs> We're working hard on the podcast, so yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, this that's that's really really cool and interesting to me. I didn't know anything about that. Um, I've like I don't I think I said I don't think I've ever read Robinson Crusoe. I know a lot of the story, but well, this is exactly the kind of email that I like, where I'm learning something that I would not have learned if she had never emailed us. Yeah, absolutely. And we're getting information that like uh, the last one we just did, where it's a personal story that someone may not have shared publicly before, mm-hmm. and now we get to share it with our listeners. Well, here, here's another cool story she has. To add to my thoughts to the endless discussion about the reading order, I agree that publication order is better. I didn't follow the publication order nor the chronological order, though. It was all over the place for me. I read The Magician's Nephew first and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe last. Whoa. Perhaps that's why it's my least favorite one. I think The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a book that mustn't be read last. The style is much simpler than in later books, and the story is less enjoyable if you already know the ending. I remember I really enjoyed Prince Caspian, even though it might have been the first book about Pevensies that I read. I still like it a lot. There's something very appealing for me and the sense of discovering and reliving ancient history. Once again, I love your podcast. Keep up the good work. All the best, Barbara. So it sounds like she read the Christopher Nolan version of these books. Just kind of going back and forth. Back and forth, and then everything summed up at the end. That's so interesting. I, I, I think, I mean, that's kind of how I, like... Uh, experienced the Star Wars movies. I, I saw Star Wars, then Jedi, and then Empire as a kid, uh, growing up in the early 90s. And it's it's interesting the way that that really, like the order you see a series or you read a, a series of books in, it really can affect kind of your feelings towards the book. Mm. I love The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but I, I think if I had read it last, I don't think I'd like it that much either because it is so much simpler. And I think the reason I like it is because I remember how more 
complicated how much darker something like the last battle gets by the end. And so when you read the line of the wardrobe, it's like, oh, this was so nice at the beginning, yeah. right? It would be weird to read that last. So I don't think the Chronicles of Narnia ever had this problem, but when I was growing up, sometimes the library didn't have the book that you wanted. Sure, sure. Especially when like I didn't understand that you could have them put on hold and like sent to the library that was close to your house or whatever. And so sometimes you had to read book number three before you could read books number one if they weren't available yet. All right, we have one more email to get to. It's written by Manise, and I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name. Uh, they wrote, Hi, Daniel and Phil. I'm Manise, and I think your show is amazing. I'm so excited for this new season. Prince Caspian is my second least favorite chronicle. My least favorite is The Last Battle. However, Prince Caspian does have some of my f- most favorite scenes and lines. <laughs> and then she went on to just ask us if we were going to um, watch the BBC and Walden adaptations again. Yes, we are, but it might not be just like at the end of this season like we did. We were trying to line up some interviews to talk to some people to, about these books. And so it might not look the same way. But yes, in one way or the other, you will hear us talk about uh, the BBC and Disney Walden adaptations. It's on the docket. I also reached out there just to ask, well, I want to know what her favorite book was. And she said The Silver Chair because she really relates to Jill. And that scene with her and Aslan at the beginning is one of her favorites. You're like, I don't know I what don't any know of that, that is. I don't know what that is, but I wanted to throw that out there because I'm like, Phil will have no idea what that means. <laughs> By the way, it is so difficult not to read ahead. And I now feel obligated to do so. Nope, to, not, do it. to not read ahead. Oh, okay, I cool. feel obligated to not do so. Well said. Well, yeah, well, those are our emails for today. We have no voicemails today, uh, but thank you all so much for those emails. Again, this is one of our favorite things to do is to read through um, y'all's thoughts and feelings. and just it's, it's fun to hear your stories. I mean, we said this in the very first episode of the season, but these are kind of like the underdog of fantasy literature in some ways. And so it's fun to hear that there's, the, there's, still a, there's a lot of people that want to hear about these books and that want to talk about these books. Um, and just because they might not be as popular as you know, whatever's X, Y, or Z, there's still, there still is a huge community out here for the Chronicles of Narnia. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. If you've made it this far, we will be back next time with chapter four, the dwarf tells of Prince Caspian. <laughs>